Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Black holes are some of the most studied and least understood celestial bodies in the universe, varying in size from a few atoms in width to many billion times the mass of our sun. These remnants of dead stars absorb all matter that passes through its gravitational field, its event horizon. Not even light particles can escape them. Yet, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, they exert immense physical influence on the fabric of space and time. Penn State astronomy. Penn State astronomy professor Neil Brandt led a team in examining images of deep space captured by the orbiting Chandra X-ray Observatory. They discovered a huge number of supermassive black holes at some staggering distances. Last week, they released their findings to the 229th meeting of the American Astronomical Society. And joining us from Penn State is Professor Neil Brandt. Dr. Brandt, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it isn't often that our audience gets an opportunity to speak with uh, someone who is a history maker, but uh, you do have that opportunity today. If you'd like to ask a question, make a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Now, I think it's important, Dr. Brandt, that we provide some background on black holes, but I want to get right to the chase right up front, if you will. Uh, For those who may not be familiar... Why is your discovery, I don't know if that's the right word or not, or these images, so significant? Well, the the images that that we've made recently, which result from an 81-day exposure with the Chandra X-ray Observatory, give us our best census of supermassive black hole growth out into the distant universe. And so what we've done is we've observed a patch of sky in the southern hemisphere, in the constellation of Fornax um, for this extremely long exposure. And the field is called the Chandra Deep Field South. And the deep part there refers to the great sensitivity that's been achieved. And by making this, this observation, we have gotten our best census, our best measurements of how supermassive black holes have grown over the entire history of the universe. And the, the X-ray aspect of these observations is really quite essential. Uh, X-ray observations, um, as in your doctor's office or your dentist's office, are very penetrating. And so X-rays allow us to find systems out in the distant universe that would otherwise be very hard to find because um, these growing supermassive black holes can often be obscured by gas and dust and other material in the centers of galaxies. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about all those things in just a moment. But as I said, it is important that we provide some background here. You know, when I hear the term black holes, I most often hear it today, people using it as a a figure of speech, like, oh, the the black hole of whatever. But define a black hole for us. How is it created? Okay, well... Black holes are most commonly created, as far as we know, when a massive star, a star that may weigh 50 or 60 or even 100 times the mass of our sun, reaches the end of its life. And at that point, the core of the star, the central part of the star, um, for these very massive stars can collapse down. And you will have something that weighs 10 times the mass of our sun, the core of this massive star, shrinking itself down to where it's the size of State College, Pennsylvania, and then shrinking itself down to where it's the size of the Penn State campus, 
and then shrinking itself down to where it's the size of, you know, an office room and then the size of a basketball and the size of a, of a um, um, small speck of dust and even down to the size of an atom. And so when you take this extremely massive object, again, weighing 10 times the mass of our sun, and shrink it down much smaller than a speck of dust, that is what we call a black hole. And it sets up this spherical region around it because its gravity is so strong, you have so much mass compressed down into such a tiny space that not even light can get away. And that is what we call a black hole. Yeah, the black holes themselves are just that. You, you can't see them. The gravity is probably the most significant uh, part of what you just described. That's yep. how we are able to see black holes, correct? Uh, that's right. And so when uh, one of these systems comes into existence, its strong gravity will, all, will often pull in material, uh, gas and dust, in the center of a galaxy, for example. And that material, um, in the process of being pulled into the black hole, can become very hot, uh, can reach temperatures of millions or even billions of degrees. And that material can get so hot that, that X-ray emission is often produced, and that's the X-ray emission that we're studying with the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And another very important point of that is when one of these black holes eats a pound of gas, its own mass grows by a pound. And so you can start with a black hole that weighs 10 times the mass of our sun, and via this process of the black hole continually eating matter over millions or billions of years, it can grow to where, as you said, uh, it can reach a billion times the mass of our sun. And the most extreme objects, the most extreme black holes that we found out there actually weigh several billion times the mass of our sun. And these are systems that would be the size, where, where the event horizon, this black sphere, uh, representing the sort of edge of the black hole. That would be about the size of our solar system for those very massive objects. You know, it's hard to get your head wrapped around that when you're, you know, talking about the size and the strength and uh, just difficult for many of us to even picture it. Why is understanding black holes important? What role do they play in the cycles of uh, star making? Yeah, well, okay, there, there's, there's many aspects there. Um, one One great thing is by studying these black holes, uh, we are probing among the most extreme physical environments in the universe. We're probing regions where gravity is very strong and where Einstein's predictions about gravity come into play and can be tested. That's one reason. Uh, these are also regions where motions are very fast, where relativistic motions are present, and we can learn a lot of exciting things there, and, but we can also study very high-temperature plasmas. And so all these physical aspects are very important. And then furthermore, we've come to appreciate over about the past 15 years that these supermassive black holes are typical are, are essential parts of typical massive galaxies, and they may well have exerted feedback upon galaxies more broadly and shaped how galaxies formed via what we call feedback, and that can be via winds launched close to the black hole or powerful jets that can be ejected at relativistic speeds or the powerful radiation that's produced from this high-temperature material close to the black hole. So black holes may shape galaxies. And then finally, and this is much more speculative, there are suggestions out there that black holes may have something to do with the creation of universes 
more generally. And so that could be another reason why they're very important. Well, so those are some big reasons. And, yeah. that, and my guess is that's probably what most people, I don't know about scientists, but probably most people would be interested in. Uh, so let's go back a little bit. The Big sure. Bang Theory, or the excuse me, the Big Bang occurred about uh, 13.8 billion years ago. Correct. The farthest black holes you observe were 12.5 billion light years away. So that's you're observing images that occurred 1.3 billion years after the Big Bang, that's but right. still, that's like the earliest that we've ever seen. What can we learn about the origins of the universe from your discovery? Well, um, we okay. Our discovery does not directly probe the the origin of the universe per se, but it it tells us a lot about how black holes have grown over the entire history of the universe. And um, as you say, we can see black holes back to these, these very early times, back to, in, in the most extreme cases, about 12 and a half billion years ago. So the light from these systems that we're seeing was, you know, flew away from the black hole long before the Earth ever formed. And as this light flew across the universe, the Earth formed, you know, and the Earth and the solar system formed, and then, you know, people came to exist upon the Earth, and then... Uh, you know, the highest form of life, astronomers came to exist, and they look back and can see these, these amazing <laughs> systems at the, the earliest parts of cosmic time. They have egos, too, don't they? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I know you that, are. That, that, that's, a, that's a common astronomer's joke. <laughs> yeah. But still, I mean, I, I, again, just trying to wrap our heads around this, and in, in layman's terms, for those who, when they hear the term 12.5 uh, billion light years away, yeah. what you're seeing actually is the status of those black holes 12.5 billion years ago. That's right. Yeah, that's the wonderful thing. The universe acts as a time machine in this way because it's so darn big. The image of how these things were long ago is, is frozen, and we can look back and see the, the universe as it was long ago. The universe is essentially our only time machine, and by looking out to great distances, we can look back to how the universe was at these very early times. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. Neil Brandt, a professor of astronomy at uh, Penn State and the team leader of a group of astronomers and astrophysicists studying deep space images of black holes, and they made history. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter at Smart Talk at WITF, 1-800-729-7532. Dr. Brandt, um, I want to get back to uh, you had talked about the mass of uh, these black holes that you observed. If you could, talk about it in scale. If, you know, the black holes you described were 10 billion times, or some of them, 10 billion times the mass of our sun. Yeah. In that scale, if it was placed in the center of our solar system, where our sun is, yep. how far out would it extend? Yeah, so it, it, uh, the, those very massive ones would extend out to the outer reaches of our solar system. So that's how big the, the, this black sphere, the event horizon, would be for those, for, for those the most massive ones. Okay, yeah. so, so in these that... Things are, these things are huge. So in that scenario, what happens to the planets in our solar system? Uh, I mean, describing gruesome detail, and it would be gruesome detail, what would happen to the Earth? 
Right. Well, um, if, if, if a planet were to stray too close to a black hole, it would, um, for one of these very massive ones, it could actually venture inside this black sphere without being destroyed. But then it would feel this ir- irreversible pull down toward this central collapsed mass which, again, would be weighing about 10 billion times the mass of our sun, and it would irrevocably move toward that. And as it got closer and closer, it would feel a set of forces that would pull on it and would stretch it out. Um, One way I often um, explain this when I talk to our undergrads here is if you were falling, say, feet first down toward one of these black holes, you you would feel a stronger force on your feet because they'd be closer to this, this collapsed object than your head. So it would be stretching you out in a linear direction, making you taller and taller. And at the same time, it would be squeezing your arms inward. And it would be pulling you out into this long, linear shape. In fact, the, the name astronomers use is spaghettification yeah, yeah. because it would be stretching you out like a spaghetti noodle. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I've read about this, I often see that speculation of what would happen to a person who is, I don't know, for lack of a better way to describe it, sucked into a, a black hole. But, mm-hmm. th- but this isn't just a morbid curiosity. There's some real scientific debate about this, isn't there? Um, yes, certainly. The, the under, trying to understand what happens inside black holes is is of great interest and importance um, because it by 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 addressing that question head on and trying to get to an understanding of it, um, we can hopefully learn about uh, our about the broad issue of gravity and what is the, the, the nature of gravity. We've known for a long time the best description of gravity is the one that Einstein provided us in the early 1900s. But um, there, are, there are known to be challenges even today with that description of gravity. And um, trying to combine gravity with the other great theory of the early 1900s, quantum mechanics, is still a great challenge. And so that's one of many reasons why these um, black holes are of such great interest and why what goes on inside them is of such great interest. Now, if there are so many black holes, you calculated over a billion detectable across the whole sky, why don't they pose a threat to our solar system? Because space is really, really big. That, that, <laughs> that's, that's the easy bottom answer, line. Huh? That's the answer. Space is, is even bigger still. And so that, um, the, that, that, that um, you can have this huge number, as you say, a billion black holes across the entire sky, yet none of them are close enough that they pl- pose any realistic threat. Yeah, so we're fortunate in that regard that the universe is so big. All right, let's take a phone call here from uh, Jim and Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, this is a fascinating topic. It really is. Uh, Professor, I, uh, I, I believe it or not, I have a political question for you. Um, we seem to have a, uh, a president-elect and members of his incoming administration who are denying some of the basic tenets of science, like how old the universe is, whether climate change is real, and things like that. I'm fond of a saying of uh, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who says, the thing about science is it's true whether or not you believe it. Uh, so my question for you is, what, what do you, what's your response to people in authority who are denying some of the basic tenets of science? Uh, thank you. Thank you for your call, Jim. Okay. Well, I, I think, um, I, I mean, I, th- I think when, when there are indisputable scientific facts that are being denied, I think that will lead to no good in the end. 
Um, there are some other things where, there, where, where our knowledge is much less solid, where there is still room for reasonable debate. But I think anyone who um, denies basic facts, um, someone who, for example, um, argue, you know, wants to argue that the earth is flat, okay, or that the earth is only, you know, is, is very young, some of these things just, just don't make sense to me um, because we have – overwhelming evidence that things are not that way. And I think um, just pushing on something that is known to be wrong will lead to no good in the end. You know, and that, that kind of, I don't know if it's it's related, but I, I, I have to, I, I'm trying to picture, as I said, I you know, I called you a history maker. I'm curious about your feeling as an individual, as a scientist, to look at something that is 12.5 billion years old. Yeah. Just to kind of describe your emotions, what you're thinking as you're seeing this. Yeah, well, that, that's, I mean, I've been working on these, these observations and trying to, you know, push this field along, as have the many great members of my team for, for 17 years now. And people often ask me, well, after 17 years, don't you get bored of doing the same thing and looking at all these little, these little X-ray dots on the sky? And, and the answer is no, because it's, it's such a wonderful um, thing. And, and as you say, it's, it's, it's amazing being able to look back billions of years into cosmic history and, you know, even, and being able to answer in any sort of reliable way, how, have, how has the, the population of supermassive black holes grown? over the history of the universe, or how have they shaped galaxies like our own? Um, I don't see how anyone could get bored by such a thing. It's, it's the most wonderful thing to be able to think about every day. Mm. We, have an, uh, we have a question here from Robert in Camp Hill mm-hmm. and ask, uh, do this, does this new study reveal the relationship between black holes and dark matter? Um, this study does not specifically address that. Um, we, we do think that, that, the, that black holes um, out in the universe will grow by eating dark matter. What is dark matter? Okay, so people have found evidence via a variety of different approaches now that there is a lot of unseen matter out in the universe, so material out there that has mass but is not producing light. And I don't mean just optical light. I mean light at any wavelength. It doesn't produce any radio or infrared or ultraviolet or x-ray. And so it doesn't produce any radiation, at least that we've been able to detect so far. And so the idea is that there may be, well, there, there almost surely is much more mass in this dark form out in the universe than there is the mass that we can see. And a black hole um, will eat that material, as far as we understand, if it, if it encounters it, and will grow in mass by doing so. Now, this dark matter tends not to compress itself down as well as galaxies do. When you look at a, a deep picture with, with the Hubble Space Telescope, you can see these distinct configurations of stars and gas, which we call galaxies. But they, we believe that around each one of those is a much larger um, much more dif- diffused uh, dark matter structure. And the black hole will eat that, but it doesn't eat it as effectively. Even though there's more dark matter than there is normal matter out there, the black holes tend not to eat it so effectively because it doesn't compress itself down um, to, um, to where a black hole can eat it as effectively as it can the normal matter. Let me take a step back. I should have mentioned sure. this right up front or talked about sure. it. You mentioned yep. the Hubble uh, Space Telescope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you actually get to see these black holes? Right. And so what, we do, what, we do, what we've done is we've taken this 81-day exposure 
with the Chandra X-ray Observatory, and when we make the, the, that, when we make that very, very deep, extremely sensitive observation, we detect a bunch of point-like sources in the image, and then the next step, once you've detected all these little point-like sources to figure out what they are. Where do they lie out in the universe? And that has relied, getting the answer to that has relied upon taking the X-ray data, which are so wonderful for homing in on where the black holes are, and combining it with data at many other wavelengths. For example, we've, we take the positions on the sky where these X-ray sources are, and we match them up to observations with the Hubble Space Telescope. And that, that lets us see the exact galaxies where the black holes are growing, and we can measure all the properties of these galaxies. How massive are these galaxies where the black holes grow? Um, how fast are they forming stars? How much gas is in these galaxies? We, by measuring all these things, we can look in an unbiased way about where black hole growth occurs in the universe. And by, by then extending that, that's how we can answer these broader questions of, of how has the black hole population changed over the entire history of the universe. Let's take a phone call from Susan in Lancaster. Susan, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. This is terrific because I'm an amateur astronomer, and I love taking out my little 12-inch Dobsonian. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yep. my question is... Um, it, with the population that you speak of of black holes, let's assume that they increase over time, and time being billions of years. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you foresee the effect of black holes throughout having any effect on the expansion of the universe that we're aware of taking place right now? Hey, Susan, right. thank so, you very much for your call. Yeah, thank you. So, so um, matter overall in the universe does have some effect upon the expansion of the universe. But as far as we've, we've come to understand right now uh, in, our, in our cosmological measurements of how the universe as a whole is expanding, it appears right now that, that another, another um, mysterious thing in the universe known as dark energy has actually taken over and is primarily driving the expansion. And so the black holes, while, they are, while there are many of them out there, and while they are you know, impressively massive individually, um, they, they are, the, even the, the dark matter, for example, is even more massive still. And there's this additional quantity in the universe, which remains very mysterious, termed dark energy, which is primarily driving the, the expansion of the universe. So the black holes don't shape the, the cosmic expansion so much. Well, Dr. Brandt, we're almost out of time. I want to thank you very much for being with us today and offer my congratulations. We do have uh, the image uh, on our website, WITF.org. You know, when you see that image, if you're just looking at it, it just looks like a lot of stars, right? Yep, yep, that's right. But uh, when you dig into it deeply, it's uh, it really is wonderful. Um, you have measurements of where these black holes grow. You can measure their spectral properties. You can measure how they varied over time. And you can use all this wonderful multi-wavelength data to get a comprehensive picture of, of black hole growth in the universe. Dr. Brandt, thank you very much for being with us today. Great. Thank you very much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Most books about the Civil War focus on battles and military strategy. Those that are about relationships are usually fictional accounts. Also, the great majority of Civil War stories take place on the eastern battlefields of Gettysburg or Virginia. 
The new book, A Civil War Captain and His Lady, Love, Courtship, and Combat from Fort Donelson through the Vicksburg Campaign, is different and it is unique. Gene Bars, the author of the new book. Gene, welcome to the program. Scott, thank you for inviting me on. And yes, we are going to the extremes of the universe today. We went all the way to the edge of the universe, and now we're going 150 years ago. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. As I said, your book is unique in several ways, and our audience will hear throughout our discussion uh, over the next few minutes about how unique and different it is. But there's a story in itself behind the book. And that involves the letters between Captain Josiah Moore and Jenny Lindsay. The story starts with the letters and you obtaining these letters. Talk about how you did that. Yeah, Scott, it was a really interesting thing. In fact, it was one of those just being very fortunate in terms of how, how it came to me. I had a friend, a uh, guy I used to work with, he was in Florida, had inherited a cabin on a lake in Wisconsin. And part of that that was left in the cabin, he said, I found all these old letters. I think they're Civil War. He wanted me to sell them for him, knowing that I had an interest in this. And when I read them and I saw what they were, and I had to sit down and look at them and realize it was really this, this Civil War courtship, a Victorian courtship done through letters, I couldn't sell them. I realized that had we done that, it would have been split up and the story never would have been told. And I realized that this was a story that had to be told because as I got more into it, I realized, believe it or not, Having letters from soldiers not that uncommon because people at home would tend to keep them, put them in drawers. What was un more uncommon were letters from home to the soldier because typically they had no way of keeping them. And even rarer still is having both of the back and forth correspondence that details this type of relationship and the development of the relationship. Yeah, and again, I just have to point out how unusual and how unique that is that you have letters both to and from. So I mentioned Josiah Moore and Jenny Lindsay. Tell me about uh, this couple. Well, you know, they're both very educated people. People look at the book, and hopefully they will go buy the book and read the book. Uh, they are both, as you can see, pretty well uh, fairly well-to-do. She was the daughter of one of Peoria, Illinois' most outstanding citizens. In fact, her father was a member of the Whig Party. Of course, this had to turn to politics at some point between <laughs> you and I. Uh, he was a member of the Whig Party, turned Republican, and he was a House member in Illinois as a Republican, and then ran for the Illinois State Senate as a Democrat and became what's known as a Peace Democrat or Copperhead. Uh, Josiah Moore was a 27-year-old. Uh, Jenny was 19. Josiah was a 27-year-old Irish immigrant who was a student at Monmouth College in Illinois. They're both very educated people, both very literate people, and it shows in the letters, and they're both very knowledgeable, they're both very religious, and so the letters are really a wealth of information about the time, about the individuals, and you can really see the, not only the growth of their, of their relationship in the letters, you see the growth of the individuals. And you, you really can, and, but one thing that I found uh, so fascinating and interesting is that you transcribe these letters yourself. Now, you, you brought a few of them here today. Now, you know, many, many times we've heard people say, oh, they used to write their penmanship the way <laughs> they, they wrote in the old days. It was so pretty. And, but 
those are not the easiest things to transcribe. In fact, there were some parts there that you, you just couldn't tell what they were saying. But, I mean, Gene, how long did that take you, and how did you do it? The whole, the whole process of the book took 16 years because, as you know, I've been on here a number of times. We're usually talking other topics. You know, having a full-time job and another endeavor, you try and get through that. But when I sat down and began the letters, just getting into the pattern of their speech and figuring out, exactly what they meant because punctuation was different for example instead of apostrophes it would look like a comma sometimes they wouldn't use a period the sentences would be run on there would be some misspellings on both even though both of them are again pretty well educated so it took a long time but as you got into the pattern of their speech for me it got a bit easier but I wound up transcribing about 75 wartime letters there were a few from after the war and I referenced some of them in the book as well but it certainly took a while. And of course, I also wanted to put this in the context of the time. So I did significant research, traveled through Illinois, uh, Vicksburg, uh, of course, Washington to National Archives, out here to Carlisle, where there's a marvelous collection of research papers. So did all that on my own, too. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of describe the book, uh, it's not just, uh, you know, copies of the letters. What Gene has done is they're kind of in, in chronological order, starting yes. in 1861, going up to 1860. That uh, where you describe the events surrounding what's going on in the war. Reason being that uh, Captain Je Josiah Moore, at this, with the 17th Illinois Infantry, was at Fort Donaldson, and you know all the way up through uh, Vicksburg, one of the most significant campaigns of yes. of the entire war. And and we'll talk a little bit about the history as we go. What stuck out to you as you read these letters? Uh. One of them certainly was for a 19-year-old woman, her maturity and her ability to see and to see things beyond the obvious, that, you know, that was certainly one. And also, there was a lot of eye-opening experiences for me. I've been interested in the Civil War for literally 50 years. It started on a trip, we grew up in Philadelphia, up here to Gettysburg, and something just stuck. But... And there were a lot of things, and part of when I go around and give talks, I talk about that, things I learned about the Civil War. And a lot of that was at the base, and we talk about this, how people met during the war. It would have been considered tremendously rude to walk up and introduce yourself to somebody, for Josiah to walk up to Jenny and say, hi, my name's Josiah Moore. Incredibly rude in the, in the 1860 period. You don't do that. So I'd never thought much about, well, how did they get together? So you had to kind of put some of that together in the context of the time in terms of how people did interact and how they met and how they agreed to exchange. For example, she had to agree to get... She had to agree to take his letters. It wouldn't be a, it would be rude to just write somebody a letter. You had to agree to correspond. So for me, it was eye opening to see a lot of the social aspects of the time, because as you've noted, we see a lot about you know the military engagements, about you know this brigade went in and they wheeled to the left, et cetera. Um, this is different, and for me, it was eye opening. Mm -hmm. And they're written so beautifully, but it, it does take some concentration, I would imagine, to understand. You know, in the, t the the context of the times, what they were writing about sometimes. It does. And one of the things that I wanted to do, and you've kind of referenced this, is, I mean, I could have just put the letters out there and let people figure out you know, when he says, I'm at Pittsburgh Landing, which is a battle Shiloh, what that means. 
Uh, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go deeper than that. I wanted to put that not only into the context of why he was there or when she references things happening in the home front, why that was going on, but put it into a deeper context of exactly what that means and literally to to look at life in the 1860s Civil War period through their letters when they talk about religion. What does that mean about how important it was for them, about how in religion influenced their lives as well as their view of religion influenced how they looked at things. So it was getting into a lot of that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that uh, you, you, you kind of saw a transformation over the years as they were writing. I mean, one of the things I noticed uh, just from the letters and what you write is that Jenny seemed to be thinking a little more about romance as she went along. Yes. I mean, there were. it took until like 1863 before she said, uh, not sealed with a kiss, but um, referenced a kiss, and then did it fairly often yes. after that. Uh, so even though they were just writing, now they only saw each other a couple times they during did. the war. That's correct. Um, that even though they only saw each other a couple of times, as they were writing, you could see that this romance was blossoming a little bit. It was. One of the interesting things at one point was, and again, I credit first the publisher. We referenced the letters. The publisher agreed to keep everything in, which is important to show, even though some of it was you know, rather mundane. I went to Chicago to visit my sister. That's what soldiers in the field wanted. But you're absolutely right. You can see this developing and see how they go forward. And one of the things I talk about in the book is how, unfortunately, men would develop in negative ways as part of their military service. But with Jenny, she continued to say to him, when are you coming home? When are you coming home? I need to see you. And one of my friends who read it said, boy, I was starting to she was really re trying to really pressure him yeah, about she getting was. home, yeah, wasn't she? she? Was. And one of the other interesting things is, if you recall, I believe it was early 62, Josiah had gotten sick and didn't write. And one of uh, Jenny's cousins either took it upon herself or maybe Jenny did. It was almost like one of these junior high things. She wrote a letter <laughs> saying, well, don't you like Jenny anymore? Yeah, How come yeah. you're not writing? And it was kind of funny to see that. And you say, well, look, she is only a 19 or 20-year-old girl. This, this is you know normal to think like that. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that Jenny's father was a Democrat uh, who was what was referred to as a copperhead. You know, in the course of the story, to me, this is just one added thing that adds some intrigue to the story. Talk about Copperheads. And, you know, it doesn't seem like Jenny in her letters and maybe and you kind of um, read between the lines of how Josiah is writing back to her. They don't talk a whole lot about politics, and that may have to do with her father. I think Josiah was very careful in his letters. He's he's courting this woman. In other writings that he does, he references, particularly as you get into 1863, when these peace Democrats or copperheads became anathema to many of the men in the field. But Josiah recognizing that Jenny's dad is one of the more noted ones in Illinois, because Illinois is very split. I mean, we all make assumptions that, oh, geez, Illinois is in the north or solidly for the Union. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Portions of Illinois were very much pro-Southern. and I have to say, I learned that from your book. Well, thank you. Yeah. And in fact, pieces of, there are parts of Pennsylvania that had real right. issues. I mean, about an hour north of here was a place called the Fishing Creek Confederacy. And um, so I think Josiah was being very careful. He would criticize Copperheads in other writings, but when it came to Jenny, he would just kind of 
pushed that off to the side, and they would talk about each other more than anything else. And we're going to talk about uh, Josiah Moore's, you know, his time in combat because he was involved in some of the most significant battles in the Western theater in just a moment. Our guest is Gene Barr, author of the new book, A Civil War Captain and His Lady, Love, Courtship, and Combat from Fort Donaldson Through the Vicksburg Campaign. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also uh, on Twitter, Smart Talk, it's at Smart Talk WITF. Gene, you know, something that uh, you you just said, uh, kind of just, well, okay, but let me go this way. When we were talking about things that are unique in the book, another part of it that is unique, I mentioned in the introduction, is that this is in the Western theater. Yes. There is so much written about what happened in the Shenandoah Valley, around Richmond, the battles in Virginia, Gettysburg. But we don't hear a whole lot about what happened in the Western theater, so that that does make the book unique. It does. It's certainly not as well reported. And, of course, here we are in Pennsylvania, and, of course, Gettysburg and Antietam and Spotsylvania and Manassas capture the imagination more. And the reality is it has been written about more because, in many cases, those people who lived in New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Boston, et cetera, were probably a bit more educated in most cases than those on the West. There are more letters available. The letters tend to be better written. So therefore, they they tend to get the attention. Um, And this is about the Western theater. For people who aren't as sure, Western theater doesn't mean California or Nevada. Western theater basically means everything west of the Pennsylvania-Ohio border, such that Ohio troops and Illinois troops and Indiana troops were Western troops. And campaigns like Forts Henry and Donelson and Shiloh were called part of the Western campaign. And it is not as represented. So I had to do... and. Again, having been born and raised in Pennsylvania, I did live for a time in Georgia, so I got a little acquainted with some of the Western campaign. But for me, it was diving into those. So I went to visit Vicksburg as part of this. I'd never been to Vicksburg before. I found it to be probably the most physically intimidating Civil War battlefield I've seen. Uh, it's interesting it, it how appears to much the same way as it, as it did then, it right? It does. It does. It's mm-hmm. just to see these walls that these guys had to assault was absolutely incredible. He was part of that. So, yeah, we, we don't get as much of that. So to get that part of the letters in, and I found some other unpublished material as part of my research in other places in uh, – out in say some Illinois public libraries that has never been that has never been reported, never been worked on, added that into the book as well. You know, I've read a lot of Civil War books, but I have to say that yours provides one of the best descriptions of the mindset of Union soldiers that I, I've ever seen. Uh, you really get a sense of how much, for example, that not just Union soldiers, but a lot of people in the North disliked abolitionists. Absolutely. Those who were uh, very much, you know, saw the war as abolishing slavery. Talk about that. I mean, these soldiers were not going to war to fight to end slavery. They were not. And that was always one of the things that was assumed. There's been a lot of good research. And, you know, I was able to rely on things, for example, by Gary Gallagher and also had a tremendous amount of support from a professor that I had at St. Joe's in Philadelphia, Randall. Miller, who was tremendously helpful and helped point me into some of these. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we make the assumption that the war started, it was about slavery, and I believe it was. But the typical Union soldier did not enlist to end slavery. They did not believe the African-Americans were blacks were anywhere near their equal. Um, 
And as the war progressed, it became more pragmatic than philosophical. Well, we got to end slavery because the Confederacy is using the slaves to further their war aims. And in fact, you could make the argument that Abraham Lincoln felt the same. Um, but that's absolutely right. And there are many soldiers who hated abolitionists as much as they hated the Confederacy because they blamed them for bringing the war on. Mm -hmm. And as you said, you just touched on this, that uh, you know many of them had the attitudes that today would be considered racist, absolutely. that they did not have a high opinion of African-Americans. Absolutely. And what was great to see, and, and it kind of ebbed and flowed, was one, how it changed, because some of them did have their hearts changed as they saw the horrible conditions in the South as they went through Tennessee and Mississippi. Some changed for pragmatic reasons. That is, well, you know what? A, a former slave is, is good enough to be shot at as I am. And then some of them saw the tremendous bravery exhibited by the African-Americans who enlisted in some of the black units that served and saw and were swayed by that. So it was a multitude of things that caused some of, some of the thought process to change. All right, so let's talk about Josiah Moore's uh, military service. He was with the 17th Illinois Infantry. It was formed in Peoria, Peoria, Illinois in 1861 after President Lincoln had called for volunteers. Um, at first, and, you know, I, it's not like in real life, it's not like the, <laughs> the infantry formed and they went straight into battle. I no. mean, there was a lot of drilling going on, a lot of uh, training going on. It took them some time before they actually saw their first combat, didn't it? It, it took a long time. And in fact, Josiah's company was Company F, which were formed in the town of Monmouth, and many of them, 20 to 25, were students at the college, which was which was fairly typical. And I own, and we can put up on the website as well, hopefully you folks will be able to do that, um, the original muster-in sheet, where in April of 1861, after the Battle of Fort Sumter, all these people from Monmouth came in and signed their name onto this, say, yep, I want to fight. And most of them, as to reference our previous conversation, wanted to fight to save the Union. That was really the driving force for them. And so as I was doing my research, I looked down, and one of the names on the sheet is James Earp. Well, come to find out, Wyatt Earp's wow. brother was in his company. So they put them all together. And I think it's also important to note how these units were formed. Unlike today, when you enlist in the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Army, the Air Force, you'll go in, you'll be serving with, you know, if you're in Pennsylvania, you'll be serving with someone in California or Illinois or, or Texas. When these guys went into war, they were literally marching into war with their brother to their right or left, their co-worker in front of them, a fellow student to them. Perhaps their father was the captain of the company. So they all came in. They were all amalgamated, these companies, 100 men, 10 companies each, put into a regiment ostensibly, at least on paper at the beginning, of 1,000. And then they had to teach them literally how to operate with each other because you had to march shoulder to shoulder, front rank, rear rank. It was very different. It was Napoleonic tactic, linear tactics, as it was called, in order to bring as many muskets, rifle muskets to bear on the target as possible. But it took a long time, literally, for them to figure out how to how to march right, march left, turn left, turn right, you know, how to do right about face. It took a long time for these guys to be able to be welded into some kind of fighting shape. How did Josiah become a captain at 27? Great story. And there's a couple different options for that. He had no military experience, which was fairly typical for people. In fact, the, the U.S. had a very small standing army. It goes back to the old Revolutionary War prejudice against having large standing armies and what the British did to the U.S., to the colonists. Um, Josiah, literally, as they were enlisting people that day, they had a big rally in uh, one of the halls in Monmouth. And someone said, we're at 99. We need month. We have to have one man more. And Josiah Moore stood up and said, I am that one man. And apparently, according to folk, 
to the local legend, people were so impressed they made him captain. He was also <laughs> six foot four, which I think you know certainly made him a striking individual among the company. And, and, and quite frankly, uh, there may have been generals in the war who were appointed for the same reasons. Much, much of it had to do with politics. Absolutely. It, it, with, with, with many of them. All right, so when did the 17th Illinois see their first action? The first one was late 1861, a little battle of Fredericktown, Missouri. Uh, they were chasing a guy named Jeff Thompson, who was a former mayor of St. Joseph, Missouri, and was what kind of kind of a guerrilla, irregular, et cetera. And that was their first battle, which, of course, was a big battle for them. But the size of that and, unfortunately, the casualties of that battle would pale in comparison to what was coming next. Yeah. Shiloh. Shiloh in Tennessee. Yeah. Um, Donaldson first. Henry was not much because the kind of the Navy had taken out Fort Henry. But Fort Donaldson was, if you think, really their first experience. And the writings of Donaldson, what, what got to me the most, I think, were the the letter that, that Josiah had to write home to the family of one of the men who was killed in his unit. Uh, just just overarching, you know, the angst that you see, you know, the agony that you see in that. And a couple of the other letters that I found as part of my research that, that I found of, of one of Josiah's colleagues as a captain, uh, the mother of one of his sergeants and then the sister of one of his sergeants, that back and forth was, was incredibly striking. You know, and something I have to mention, because w- when you do read the letter itself that Josiah wrote, home to the the, the soldier who was killed. Uh, You know, one of the first things he says, he was shot through the head, uh, and I can't remember the exact words, but you you talk about that. I mean, that seems like something that would sound kind of insensitive and that today we wouldn't wouldn't do that. Scott, you know, I thought the same. It was rather shocking. In fact, a piece of shell took carried away the top of his head, and he was rather graphic in telling the family that. And I think Part of that is there's there was certainly this image that you know that dying in battle was so noble. I want to tell you everything about it, which we would never do today, but he did, and he he got into it in fairly graphic detail, which was to be honest fairly surprising to me as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so you mentioned Fort Donaldson, Fort Henry. Now, this, trying to picture this on a map for our listeners out there, this is along the Mississippi. Why is this so important? Henry and Donaldson? Yes. Well, you know, Grant looked at it, and he was, obviously, Grant was getting more and more responsibilities at that point, and he saw a couple of forts that could lead him further into the south, and he thought that they were vulnerable, and, of course, he absolutely was right. Henry was extremely vulnerable. Fort Donaldson took a lot more work to do. They had to surround it and uh, finally took over uh, Fort, uh, Fort Donaldson afterwards, and, of course, the surrender of that fort gave Grant his... his uh, his famous nickname of uh, Unconditional Surrender Grant, because that was his terms when he delivered them to the commander of Fort Donaldson, who it turns out was a guy who... A friend of his. A friend of his who had yeah. loaned him money in the past, and the guy came out and said, you know, okay, Ulysses, what are you going to give me? He says, nothing but unconditional surrender. The guy was taken aback because there was this view that it was going to be a very civil exchange, and this is between gentlemen, and um, he didn't like it all that much. That was Pemberton, right? Uh, that was not Pemberton. Was Pemberton, Pemberton was in Vicksburg. Okay. All right. Well, re- reason I, Pemberton's from the north, right? He's a Philadelphian. Yeah, I was going to say. I thought he was. He was. Uh, he was a Yankee, or wasn't a Yankee, but and, and was he's from still buried in Philadelphia. Oh, is he? He's oh, buried in Philadelphia. He is. Um, but anyway, okay. So Donaldson, Henry, what leads up to the Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee? Well, of course, they continue to go. They've now defeated a significant part of the Confederate force in Tennessee. 
and they want to move forward. Halleck, who commands all the troops in that area, starts bringing people together. But I think that they were lulled into this false sense of security that, oh, geez, this wasn't too bad. Look, we've taken Henry. We've taken Donaldson. This can't be too bad. And they wind up in camp at a little place called Pittsburgh Landing near a little church called Shiloh, and uh, which stands for Place of Peace, which would certainly change very quickly. And they had put their troops out. They were just kind of lulled into this false sense of security. They had troops that had never fought before in the front ranks. So on that Sunday morning when the Confederates came streaming out of the woods, most of them were completely shocked. Mm. Was that a, who, who won that battle? Well, on the first day, the Union was pushed back all the way back to the landing itself and uh, suffered significantly. And the, uh, and the book gets into a lot of the detail and a lot of the discussion because the camps were literally overrun. Union camps were overrun. They lost some of their company books. They lost flags. They lost equipment. Of course, you know, hundreds and hundreds of men killed that day. And um, the second day, the Union regrouped, brought fresh troops in, and pushed the Confederates back to literally where they had started. Part of that battle was um, PGT Beauregard, who had overseen the Confederate offensive there at Fort Sumter, had been brought out there and was part of that as well. But Shiloh was also one of the first battles that told the North, this is not going to be easy. This is going to be extremely difficult. It's going to be bloody, and it's probably going to take a long time. We only have a couple of minutes left. There's sure. so much more I'd like to talk about. Vicksburg. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. And Josiah and the 17th Illinois is very much involved they in are. the siege on Vicksburg. They are. And as you noted earlier, Vicksburg, even though it doesn't get as much attention as Gettysburg for historians, was probably just as important because it was it allowed them to capture the Mississippi and open, open that traffic. But Josiah his men and his men participated in one of the assaults against the uh, Vicksburg defenses. And as we mentioned, you know, you look at those defenses and say, wow, how did, how did those guys ever charge across that field? And incredible descriptions written about that. And from after the battle, it devolved into a siege. And Josiah and his men were out, no cover, out in the Mississippi sun of June um, with no shelter whatsoever for about 40 days. But it was interesting. I love the the interplay where the Confederates and the Union lines had gotten so close that they began to socialize and intermingle. And I it's always some great discussions. Yeah, they got together. Josiah was part of that. Where at night, they did. The, the, the two sides talked, and then they'd start shooting at each other the next They'd get day. together and trade and everything else. Yeah. We have about 90 seconds left, uh, Gene. While all this is going on, uh, and it's over a course of three years, the letters between Josiah and Jenny, how much is he telling her about uh, what he's, I mean, he's telling about where he is and things like that, but how much is he telling her? He's telling her, and there's kind of two pieces. One, he's certainly opening himself up to her, and you can see the deepening relationship. One of the other things is, despite what you would have to do beginning World War II on, not a not a whole lot of censorship was going on in those days. So a lot of mil- what would be passed for military secrets were being passed back and forth as well. But importantly, their relationship had significantly deepened. Well, we're not going to give away the ending of the book, uh, just to say that uh, Josiah did, he did survive. Yes. Uh, He did survive the Civil War, but we're not going to give away the end of the book. Uh, And uh, I I find it a fascinating book, and I think that our listeners would too. Uh, It's Gene Barr's first book, uh, The uh, 
uh, Civil War captain and his lady love courtship and combat from Fort Donelson through the Vicksburg campaign. And uh, you brought some of the letters here today, and we're going to get some photographs and put on our website, WITF.org, so that uh, our listeners can get an opportunity to, to get a look at the at the photographs, uh, uh, or excuse me, the, the letters themselves. Gene, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. Coming up on uh, Monday, it is uh, Martin Luther King Day across the country, and we'll be talking about the civil rights in 2017 that comes up on monday's program so be sure to tune in